great song, a great anthem. Uh, we are starting a new series today on the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over there. You say, Gordon, hold up. I thought you were jumping back to some stuff you had covered over the summer. I thought we were going to jump back into that series. Um, been kind of thinking about that. What's the best way to approach some of that material? I think it really lands better in a classroom and more of a teaching discussion format. And so we'll be in touch with you about when some of that becomes available. Uh, but for now, we're just going to jump into the book of Philippians. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Philippians. I have a map for you here. And you can see Philippi, the city of Philippi, which where the book of Philippians was written to. Um, Philippi is on the northern tip of the Aegean Sea, which is north of the Mediterranean Sea. They're kind of part of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, there's a city called Neapolis that sits right on the coast. It's a coastal city. Philippi is about 10 miles northwest of that city. Um, it sits right on the Via Ignatia, and I've got a picture of that for you here. This is a, a, a picture of the ruins of this ancient Roman road that ran right through the city. It's kind of like Interstate 20 running right through east to west um, of the city of Philippi. And so because of that, it made Philippi a city of uh, a hub for trade, a hub for military supplies. Um, in fact, the Roman uh, government, for soldiers that had served in the government, they would give them land grants. And one of the places where they gave soldiers land grants was here in the city of Philippi. And of course, that was in the interest of the Roman government. They were, they were putting in that area a bunch of retired soldiers to make sure that that area was ship-shaped um, so that any of the goods going from east to west from Italy um, out to the uh, eastern part of the Roman Empire uh, would pass along this trade route. So it was a very important city, about 250,000 people back in Paul's day. I have another picture for you here. Um, the city of, or the, the letter of Philippians was written from prison, from jail. Um, this is a picture not of the jail that Paul was in when he wrote the letter, but rather of the jail that he, time that he spent while he was in Philippi. Uh, if you know the story of Philippians, uh, Paul went there on his second missionary journey. Um, he visited the city. He shared the gospel. His first convert was a lady by the name of Lydia. She was a purple dye maker, a uh, very wealthy lady. And so then his next convert happened to be the jailer. Imagine that, uh, where Paul had spent the night, uh, the miraculous story about how the earthquake shook the hillside, the, the prison doors opened, the chains all popped off the prisoners. Uh, the jailer's about ready to jump on his sword because he knows that his, he thinks his prisoners have all run away. And if that happens, then you're a Roman soldier and off with your head. And so he's about ready to jump on his sword and Paul yells out from the jail cell, no, 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 we're, we're all still here. And so he ends up sharing Christ with this Philippian jailer during the middle of the night. He's baptized, he takes him home. He visits, in the middle of the night, he visits his family. Um, the Philippian jailer's family are all converted. They're baptized. And then the next morning, Paul is released from jail. So that's kind of the start of this church in Philippi. It had been a couple of years later, Paul comes back to this church on his third missionary journey. He makes his way um, up through uh, Ephesus on the one side, on the, on the eastern shore, the Aegean Sea, up and around to the north to Philippi, then to Thessalonica, Berea, and then on down into Greece, uh, revisits the church in Corinth again. Um, but So Paul had visited this church on multiple times. Some say twice, some say three times. But again, the first time he was there, he was only there for a week. And the second time he was there, it was just part of his travels on his way through, so maybe a couple of weeks. So Paul doesn't have a huge amount of time that he spent with this church, but this church meant a lot to the Apostle Paul. And one of the reasons why that meant a lot to Paul is because they had kind of adopted Paul as their missionary. They sent a regular supply of money to Paul to support him in his missionary effort. And so because of that and because of his time that he'd spent there, they had really, their hearts were just united and, uh, and Paul had a special place in his heart for them. Um, again, the letter itself is part of what's called the prison epistles. The prison epistles were letters that Paul wrote from jail when he was in Rome. 
Um, and those are Ephesus, or the Ephesians letter, um, the Philemon, and uh, I'll think of the third one, and then Philippians. Um, and so uh, uh, Colossians, that was the other one. And so this is one of those letters that Paul writes while he's in jail, while he's waiting to meet with Caesar. So our text for today comes at the beginning of this chapter, of the beginning of the letter, Philippians chapter 1. If you would stand to your feet, we'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Just as a reminder, again, why we stand for God's word. It's not just out of respect. It's not just out of reverence, but it's to acknowledge that this is where truth comes from, that it doesn't matter what comes out of the mouth of your pastor, right? It doesn't matter what comes out of the mouth of your friend. It doesn't matter what comes out of the mouth of your Facebook, somebody that you read on Facebook. Friends, what matters is we take all that stuff and we run it, we sift it against the word of God. And if those things don't align with the word of God, we default back to the word of God. So we stand week in and week out, be reminded that this is where truth comes from, okay? So let's read together. Uh, part of this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Here we go. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so you heard that word imprisonment pop out um, as Paul's writing to them. He's referring to the fact, again, he's in jail, he's in chains, and he's in Rome where he's writing from. So you think, well, did Paul do something wrong? Did Paul commit some sort of a crime? Is that why Paul's in jail? No, Paul is in jail because he is a political prisoner. Paul had been teaching about this guy named Jesus that he had, that had been crucified by the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jewish people. And then he said that this guy, Jesus, had been resurrected from the dead and he had been going around making converts to Jesus. And so these folks did not like Paul preaching and teaching about Jesus. And so they trumped up some charges against the apostle Paul. They had him thrown in jail with the intent that he would be executed. Paul himself had stood by and watched Stephen be stoned to death. Paul had overseen and been a part of the killing of martyrdom of many Christians uh, for many years. And so now it was happening to the Apostle Paul. But this was not as easy as all of those cases for two reasons. The first of those is because the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, being a Roman citizen, that really complicates the matter because there's three things about being a Roman citizen when it comes to you being accused of a crime that causes the local magistrates, the local courts to pause. The first of those is that this person's not allowed to be, not allowed to be embarrassed publicly. That means you're not allowed to have their clothes stripped off and drugged through the streets naked. And another, another thing is they're not allowed to be flogged or they're not allowed to be whipped. Um, you, you know, you've seen people or heard about people being hit with those cane poles or being whipped like Jesus was whipped, shredding the skin in the back. Paul had that done to him at least on two different occasions, flogged on two different occasions. Um, but again, it's a very complicated matter in, in bringing somebody up on those charges. And the third being um, that as a Roman citizen, you had, to, you, you had to be tried. You had to experience a fair trial. And one of the reasons why the uh, Romans insisted on this for their citizens was so that the local populations would be reminded that they are subjects of the Roman Empire. So that somebody who comes along and who is a citizen of Rome has certain privileges, has certain rights that the rest of society does not have. It's a reminder to them that they are a conquered people. And so it's a little bit more difficult when it comes to dealing with a Roman citizen um, and bringing charges against them. 
And then the second reason why this is so difficult is because the charges that were actually brought against Paul, remember, they're going to have to take this to the courts. They're going to have to make their case. The charges were actually flimsy. There wasn't really a whole lot to accuse Paul of. Well, he was out preaching about Jesus. Well, where's the crime there? Um, and so they really had to, had to work on that. So for these two reasons, this process of Paul getting to a decision about his court case, well, it was a very long and drawn-out process. Paul would be sent to the first of the Jewish courts. Paul would appeal to the next of the Jewish courts. He would be sent to the next of the Jewish courts. He'd appeal to the next higher court. He'd go to the, from the local judge to the federal judge, from the federal judge to the appellate judge, from the appellate judge, up all the way up to the Supreme Court to Caesar himself. And so Paul, going through this process of appeals, it actually takes about two years that the Apostle Paul is experiencing all of that. And then when he finally makes his appeal to Caesar, gets to the last of the, the, the top of the top, and he makes his appeal to Caesar. Well, Caesar, you can imagine, is kind of a busy guy. And so it's going to take a while before Paul can get his time to be seen before Caesar. So he makes a long journey, has a shipwreck in the midst of this journey, finds his way to Italy, to modern-day Italy, and then he makes his way to Rome where he's under house arrest. And so he waits for two more years while he's waiting to make his appeal to Caesar. So four years all total, Paul's in jail waiting to um, have this verdict dealt with. Um, now, think about that, contrast that with, with these guys that had made the, the accusations against the Apostle Paul, right? So for four years, the Apostle Paul is laying on a, you know, he makes his bed on a stone, a cold stone floor in his prison, in his jail cell. You saw one of those. Um, for four years, though, these guys are laying down their heads in their comfortable beds at night. For four years, they have their family gathered around them. For four years, these people that made the charges against the Apostle Paul have their friends gathered around them. They're social. They're going out to parties. They're going out to dinner. They have their freedom. While for four years, the Apostle Paul is estranged from those he loves. For four years, these men um, schemed against Paul. They rejoiced at every, all of his setbacks. For four years, again, they had their freedom and Paul had his chains. These, those enemies of Paul had a very secure and a very uh, wealthy future in line for them, while the Apostle Paul waited for his trial and for his verdict. I think you get the point. The enemies of Paul had caused him much consternation, much trial, much tribulation. Paul's life, from a worldly standpoint, was a wreck. I mean, these folks had ruined his life. Um, in fact, you know, Caesar's verdict was off of his head. Caesar said, this guy's a troublemaker, let's just do away with him. And so these guys, in all, for all sense and purposes, ruined Paul's life. Yet listen to Paul's take about what had happened to him. Okay, This is while he's in, under house arrest, while he's waiting to be heard by Caesar. He writes these words, we read them a few moments ago, Philippians 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the church in Philippi, that what has happened to me has put such a damper on the gospel. That's not what he said, is it? Paul, Paul said, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually turned me into a great tailspin, and I have find myself in deep, deep, dark depression. Not what Paul says, is it? Paul writes there in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served, actually served, to advance the gospel. Now, I've got to take time out here for just a second and ask the question, how could putting the preacher in jail, couldn't help but see myself in those shoes, 
How could, how could putting the preacher in jail actually be something that works for the church's good, right? Preacher's not there on Sunday to preach. They're not there on Wednesday nights to teach. They're not there to organize any of the stuff. They're not there to go visit any of the people who are, who are, who are part of their congregation. And so none of those services, none of those practices that the preacher participates on a weekly basis are there to be done, and yet the church is flourishing. He says it's actually served to advance the gospel. Paul says people have gotten saved because of my imprisonment. I mean, who would have thunk it, right? How is that possible? How does, again, the pastor of the church being put in jail actually advance the church? Well, Paul tells us, verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, that they've watched what Paul has gone through, and it has emboldened them, he says, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So they're going out into the streets. They're sharing the gospel with people at their workplace. They're sharing the gospel wherever they happen to be. And people are more emboldened because Paul's in jail, because of his faith in Christ. And, he's, and, and, and people are, are sharing the gospel and folks are coming to Christ. But there's another reason why Paul says, a second reason why Paul says that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. We skipped over it. Go back to verse 13 with me for a moment. He says there, verse 13, he says, So that, or as a result of my imprisonment, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now let's stop there for just a moment and make sure we understand who Paul is referring to here, who this imperial guard is. Back in Roman times, they would refer to this group as the Praetorian Guard. History books refer to them as that. This was the most elite regiment of all of the Roman army. Um, a guy by the name of Julius Caesar, the first Caesar and the first in the line of succession of kings, if you would, of the Roman Empire, um, had uh, installed a special group, an elite group of soldiers to protect the royal family and the royal household. So everywhere that Caesar would travel, these folks would go with him. Everywhere that his family would travel, if they wanted to go out and do some shopping, they wanted to run to the mall, they wanted to go to the marketplace, whatever it was that they were doing, wherever they happened to go, these Praetorian guard would go with them, this imperial guard. It was kind of like our modern-day secret service. And so you can imagine that these people had become very familiar with, Paul's with, with, Paul, with, with Caesar's family. Uh, they'd gotten to know his wife, his children, uh, you know, aunts and uncles, and everybody else was a part of this household. And so this Praetorian guard had gotten to know them. Sandra Bingham, in her book, The Praetorian Guard, said, and I quote, "...the Praetorian guard became the power behind the throne with the ability to make or break an emperor." and they were the most privileged group in the Roman military, end of quote. And so Paul tells us right here in Philippians that through his imprisonment, every one of these guards had heard about the good news of Jesus, that they had heard about the gospel. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, one of the duties of the Praetorian Guard was that they were supposed to protect, or, or, or guard, if you would, people who were um, in line to come have their case heard by Caesar. That was part of their duties, right? Not only protect the royal family, but also anybody that was getting ready to go here, uh, have their, their time with Caesar. Which means, think about this, one by one, these Praetorian guards spent eight hours a day. I don't know if that was their shift, maybe 10, 12, I don't know. We'll say eight hours a day. Three shifts a day, 24-7, handcuffed to the Apostle Paul. That didn't sink in. Can you imagine being handcuffed for eight hours a day 
to the Apostle Paul. Do you think, yes, do you think you would just talked about the grass at the house and, you know, the zoysia that's growing in the backyard? No. The Apostle Paul would have given these guys, he would have taken them to school on God's Word and how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's Word, and he would have shared this with them and prayed with them. I mean, there were probably some very serious times of confession going on in these eight-hour shifts, and it was, became the, the bubbling up talk all around all the Praetorian Guard. These guys heard the gospel. And folks, this is how the whole Praetorian Guard heard about it. And this is how many of them came to Christ. And this is how so many in the emperor's own household heard the gospel. You say, whoa, hold on, what are you talking about there? Well, because the Praetorian Guard friends took the gospel to the members of Caesar's household, the aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and second cousins and everybody else that lived. It wasn't just the emperor and his immediate family and his nuclear family that lived there, but it was the extended family as well. This was how so many of the members of the emperor's family came to Christ. Again, you say, well, how do you know that they came to Christ? Well, because Paul points this out in the second to the last verse in his letter to the Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, these words, he says, all the saints greet you. What is a saint? Saved people, believers in Christ. Not just people who, um, who have just begun to believe in Christ, but people who have devoted followers of Jesus Christ, people who are 100% bought into this idea that Jesus Christ was God himself in the flesh, died on a cross, resurrected, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. People who, who were true disciples of Jesus Christ. He says, I, he says, so all the saints greet you, especially, he says, those of Caesar's household. So these Praetorian guard that Paul had been leading to Christ had now shared the gospel with the children of the aunts and the uncles, and he had shared the gospel with the grandparents, and he had shared the gospel, they had shared the gospel with Caesar's household. Do you think Paul would have ever had the opportunity to have an audience with Caesar's household like that? much less with the Praetorian Guard. I mean, at very best, Paul would have met the Praetorian Guard and they would have smacked, you know, he'd reached out to shake their hand, they'd smacked him in the head, right? That's been the extent of their relationship. Here, here Paul is able to build inroads into their life and into their heart and share the truth of the gospel with them. And that truth of the gospel infiltrated right into Caesar's household so that Paul would be able to say, truthfully, all the saints greet you, especially those among Caesar's household made the gardener. I mean, this thing is just exploded in Rome amongst the Caesar's own people. Bunches of people from Caesar's household had come to Christ because Paul had been chained to Praetorian guards for two years. And all of this happened. Please don't miss this. All of this happened because some people wanted to do harm to Paul. Some people wanted to silence him from ever being able to talk about Jesus again. But God took it, and he used it for good. You know, do you think that Paul any other way would have had the opportunity to talk to these people? No chance. Do you think that Paul any other way would have had access to present the gospel to the household of the emperor again? No chance. But friends, God did for Paul what God promised he would do for Paul God worked through all things for the good of those who love him. You know, there's one other guy in the scriptures that God did this for. There's 
many. But one other one that came to mind as I was working through this, um, and his name was Joseph. Y'all remember the story of Joseph? He had 11 brothers, yeah, 12 all total, 11 brothers, and they hated Joseph. Um, Joseph, what they despised him. He was the youngest of the 12, and his father, they believe, loved him the most. And so uh, they wanted to harm Joseph. They wanted to hurt Joseph. They wanted to see Joseph suffer. They wanted Joseph gone out of their life. And so they sold him off into slavery, thinking they would never see him again. But then years later, decades later, they're in front of Joseph. They're scared to death because Joseph has now been elevated from a slave as they sold him, now to become the prime minister of the most powerful country in the world at that time, the nation of Egypt. And here's his brother standing before him. They realize this is our brother whom we had sold into slavery and intended to suffer all this harm and to do all this, this you know, uh, disaster into his life. And I love what Joseph said. Joseph said, Genesis 15, verse 20, he said, you know what? You intended to harm me, but God intended what happened to me for good. In other words, God flipped the script in their life. God overruled the evil acts and intent that were done against Joseph. God gave what had happened, which was a disaster from a worldly perspective, and he turned it for Joseph's good. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, thanks for the history lesson. Now I know who the Praetorian Guard are, if anybody ever asks me, but I mean... What difference does any of this make to me? Uh, Paul lived all those years ago. Joseph, all those many more years even before that. How does that impact where I'm at today? Well, let's talk about that. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, the same God that made Paul that promise and the same God that made Joseph that promise is the same God that you and I serve. Which means the God who is capable of keeping that promise under such intense and difficult circumstances in Paul's life and in Joseph's life, the God who could flip the script in their life is the God who can do the same for you and me. And so because of this promise, friends, we must not let what people do to us to rob us of our joy or to rob us of what the Lord intends to accomplish in and through our lives. What that means is we must not look at what people are doing to us who want to damage us or scheme against us or do unrighteous things to you or to your family at your workplace or wherever it may be. Maybe it's a family member, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And we need to, in those situations, look at those folks who are trying to do us harm and smile at them, probably better on the inside, and say to them, probably better just to ourselves, you know what? You're nothing more than a little itsy bitsy pawn on God's chessboard. And he's going to work through the stuff that's happening to me, and he's going to use it to flip the script for my good. Because the God that Paul served, the God that Joseph served, is the God that I serve. In fact, if you knew that by being mean to me, you were actually helping me? You probably would be nice to me. But nevertheless, you get the point. Friends, we serve a sovereign God of the universe who is able to take what is hurtful and tragic and life-changing, like being thrown in jail, 
and he can flip it for our good. God is running the show, not them. And whatever somebody does, friends, God is just going to take it, he's going to flip it, and he's going to use it for my good, and he's going to use it for his glory. And so, friends, you tell those folks, if you're in a battle with them right now, you tell those folks, do your best. Hit me with all you got, right? And through it, you keep your eyes on Jesus. You put your hope in Jesus. Because when it's all said and done, God's going to get you right where he needs you to be. It'll be for your good. It'll be for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, in Proverbs, your word says that some men trust in chariots. Some men trust in the sword. But those who love you trust in your power and in your might. Lord, if there is uncertainty in our lives today, we pray that we would be a people like Paul who would be able to rejoice in suffering, who would be able to rejoice in times of uncertainty, walk through the fire, knowing that we serve a God who is capable of flipping the script. God, we just place ourselves, our circumstances, our tragedies, our life-changing events, whatever it is, God, that we're going through, we place it in your competent hands. Jesus, as we come around this table today, we're reminded of the beating you took. Lord, there were those that thought they were silencing you, sending you off into the history books. Oh, how wrong they were. Our faith is in you, Jesus. Affirm that again in our hearts as we spend this few moments in quiet. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he blessed the cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. The elements are there in the chair in front of you. If you would like to participate, we invite you to do so. Then let's just spend a few moments of quiet reflection. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. together for my good you 